Welcome to QAV. This is episode 611. Should be 911. What's going on in the markets today? Not 611. Recording this on the 14th of March 2023. How are you, TK? Not copacetic, Cam. <laughs> I just thought Tony a new word off air, copacetic. <laughs> I'd say not coping and pathetic would be how I describe my portfolio today. Oh, yes. What a day. I, having a look at the uh, All Odds chart this uh, just before, looks like the All Odds has wiped off all of its gains since uh, early November. Wow. So that's exciting. <laughs> five, <laughs> if you're a short months. seller. Yeah. So obviously, uh, as everyone is aware, uh, of course, the Silicon Valley Bank collapsed late last week, uh, as well as another couple of banks in the US have collapsed. And it's um, set fear and gloom into the markets. So I just read in the Financial Review before um, I sat down, Black Monday in the bond market points to pain ahead the biggest fall in short-term bond yields since the 1987 crash is sending investors and central bankers a clear message about what's to come in the wake of the SVB collapse. The extraordinary price action on global markets is proof the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank is likely to reverberate for months to come as investors find themselves caught between the need for central banks to continue their year-long battle against inflation and growing worries that an overly leveraged financial system has become unstable. Uh, didn't we fix that after the global financial crisis of 2008 <laughs> and there was over-leveraged banks? And surely, surely the powers that be put things into place, Tony, to make sure that would never, ever happen again. Well, I was reading today in the Financial Review that the Californian state regulator of financial institutions is also the California institution that's uh, designed to uh, promote the uh, tech economy in California. So <laughs> they're probably scratching their heads trying to work out how to regulate SVB. Uh, I mean, the, the bond market gyrations aside, and I'm not really sure what's driving that, I don't, my, my feeling is SVB is going to blow over. I thought it was going to blow over last week as well, but my gut feel says that this is an overreaction, that People are reliving the GFC as the playbook, even though this is completely different to the GFC. And, and I'll tell you why I say that, because it's a this is a case of bad regulation, in my opinion. I mean, the Silicon Valley Bank is a bit unusual, it's, and it's very different to the banks we have in Australia, the big commercial banks in Australia. The Silicon Valley Bank took deposits from particularly tech companies, and there were all sorts of reasons why tech companies went to SVB, one of them being that they also then lent back to tech company founders and tech companies and invested in startup funds. But if you remember Banking 101 in Australia, we, you know, people put money in the bank. The banks then either lend it back as mortgages to a different set of customers or go into the bond market with it and, uh, you know, try and earn money that way on the deposit. So banks basically take deposits and then roll them up and try and invest those deposits, either by lending them as mortgages or uh, other investments and make a spread on the interest rates they charge the customers. SVB was taking money from startups, lending it back to the startups. And then when that was proving a bit difficult, they were then looking for other investments. And they made the mistake of 
buying a lot of government bonds when the yields were low. And now that interest rates are rising and the yields are up, those bonds aren't worth very much. And, and the regulators in the States didn't make SVB take any losses on the fact that they had negative equity. They, they had their assets, should, you know, should have been written down mark to market because it, just to explain as a, if, if I buy, you know, buy a bond for $100 and it pays me 1%, which treasuries were doing as long as a year ago or as short as a year ago, and now treasuries are paying 4%, my $100 isn't worth that anymore. If I had to go out into the market and sell that bond, you know, I'd get a, a proportion of that. I might get 80 bucks for it or whatever the math works out such that the person buying it from me gets a 4% yield to match what's in the market now. So there was a... a paper loss for SVB, which didn't have to be marked to market. However, when people started withdrawing money from SVB they, and they started selling these bonds to pay people out, they were taking a, a real loss, not just a paper loss. And that's that's what caused the problem. As soon as the tech community worked out that, that was what, that's what was going on, they all pulled their money out last week. And of course, that led to a, a crash. The other interesting thing I think about all this is that the US, is, uh, US government has said, that's okay. We'll we'll honour the deposit in SVB. So that's helpful in that you know Australian companies, all the all the tech companies in Australia are invested and they get their money back. So that's helpful. However, it creates moral hazard. So unless you if you have all this loose regulatory environment, you're encouraging people to take risks, and then you're coming along like mum and saying, "Oh, that's okay. You you've broken some eggs. I'll just clean it up for you." So you're actually encouraging people to take more risks and further risks. It's like the mum on Bluey. Yeah. I was watching Bluey this morning, and that actually happened. Bingo drops some eggs, and the mum doesn't say, oh, be more careful. It's like, don't worry, honey, I'll clean that up for you. Chrissy's like, bloody hell, the parents on Bluey. They're always making us look bad. <laughs> well, that's right. The, the parents on Bluey, the regulator, should have said, don't play with eggs, kids. Just stay, <laughs> stay out of the kitchen. But the argument I've heard is that the depositors weren't taking risks. They were just depositing their money in a bank. It was the bank that was taking the risk. So. The depositors should be protected. They weren't doing anything inherently risky. The investors in the bank aren't getting bailed out, as I understand it. And the executives, of course, will all go to jail, as they always do in America when they these things happen. <laughs> well, they'll probably lay low for a while and come back and start up again because of the lax moral regulations in the States make it easy to do so. I don't know. They'll end up working for the next administration as uh, Secretary of the Treasury or something. Well, you know what they'll do? They'll go to the government and argue that they need to get their bonuses paid out because otherwise they can't attract good talent to run these banks, and that's the problem. <laughs> like the good talent that just collapsed the bank. You need more of that good talent. Exactly. Oh, and the other point I wanted to make, Cam, this is another illustration of why diversification has flaws. I mean, people have been told forever, put some bonds into your portfolio because, you know, they're safe as houses, they're paid by the government, etc. Well, this just bankrupted SVB because the the yields are increasing on bonds, which means the capital's going down. So, so much for that theory. I saw an explanation of the whole story on TikTok. Somebody asked ChatGPT to explain what happened. And I, I, I thought this was pretty clever. So I'm going to play this. Bing's AI to explain the Silicon Valley bank collapse in monkey banana terms. And I'm going to read that response to you. 
Here I go. Ooh, uh, uh, me try to explain. Silicon Valley Bank like big tree with many bananas. Many monkeys like bananas and put their bananas in tree. Tree promised to give more bananas to monkeys later, but tree bad. Tree lose many bananas in storm. Tree not have enough bananas for all monkeys. Monkeys get scared and want their bananas back. Many monkeys run to tree and grab their bananas, but some monkeys too late. No more bananas in tree. Monkeys sad and angry. Big monkey come and take tree over. Big monkey say he will find more bananas for monkeys who lost their bananas. Big monkey gives some bananas to some monkeys now and more later, but some monkeys have to wait long time for their bananas. Other trees see what happened to big tree and get worried. Other trees have many bananas too, but not lose them in storm. Other trees hope their monkeys not run away with their bananas too. Me hope you understand now. The big tree is Silicon Valley Bank. The bananas are the money. The monkeys are the depositors doing a bank run. The big monkey is the government. The other trees are the regional banks. That was literally generated by the Microsoft Bing AI. And I think its comprehension of this disaster is, is actually kind of impressive. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Actually, there's a couple of other points too. I mean, this is, you know, the, the bank run, as we saw last week, is digital these days. So it's no longer people standing outside waiting for their cash. This can all be over in 12 hours for a bank. So that's that's important to note as well. And I guess the other thing that's important to note is the potential downside from all this is that there are other banks who are poorly regulated in the US who are sitting on lots of paper losses, which haven't had to be declared because they've been buying bonds with low, even negative interest rates in some cases and haven't being good at selling those off and rebalancing their portfolios as interest rates have gone up. So, I mean, that is a potential out there. Maybe that's why there's been a run on the other regional banks. Everyone's kind of shooting first and asking questions later. However, I think I do think it's it's contained to either the small banks or the Silicon Valley Bank. So uh, another outfit called Silvergate also collapsed last week due to its exposure to crypto, apparently. <laughs> I thought crypto was going to save the world, but apparently it didn't save Silvergate. <laughs> and then another bank called Signature Bank also collapsed uh, over the weekend, I think, but they're doing sort of an orderly collapse. They said all of the depositors will get the money there. I don't think they require the government to step in. Don't they know how to play the game? <laughs> they're, they're newbies, are they? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, digital, 42 billion US taken out of the bank in a day, I read, and it's the now the largest bank run in US history. But four days before the collapse, I like this, Forbes put out its uh, list of the best banks in the US and um, SVB was, I think, in the number 20 position uh, in terms of best banks in the US. So I don't know, I guess that tells you everything you need to know about going to Forbes, <laughs> <laughs> how Forbes rate things. <laughs> and accounting and regulation. I mean, the first question of any bank in Stockholm now will be, What's your bond portfolio holding? Is it marked to market and is it reflected through the accounts? No, I, I don't understand your your comments there about using mark to market. So they use mark to market. They could, that would enable them to write down the value of those assets. But how does that help them when push comes to shove and they've got people trying to withdraw $42 billion and they need to come up with the cash to pay them and they need to sell their assets at a loss? and, you know, scramble to come up with the money. How, how does that, how would that have helped them? It doesn't. That's why it's being hidden. <laughs> it helps the investors to know what's going on and it helps the depositors to know what's going on. Oh, right. Now, it's possible that the movements in interest rates have happened within a 
No, I can't. I was going to say a six-monthly period, reporting period, and so therefore they're just declaring it now, but they have to report quarterly in the States. But they should have said, hey, guys, we're insolvent about three months ago at least. Tell their investors and tell the depositors back then, but they just tried to hide it. Well, they didn't try to hide it. They didn't have to declare it under US accounting or or regulatory rules. Were they insolvent though? Aren't they... How do you determine that? Like if there hadn't been a bank run, they would have been okay, I assume. Yeah, that's right. If if the losses had remained paper losses, it was only because I'm not sure what the sequence of events was that someone I think must have worked out that they were negative equity and therefore that the deposits couldn't all be paid out if there was a run. So it becomes becomes like, um, you know, we were talking once before about global warming. It's like it's a it can't be fixed by the participants. It's got to be fixed by someone coming in over the top because all the participants are going to keep doing what they're doing because it's in their best interest. So it's like this is the reverse, often called the Spanish prisoner problem, where if you and I are separated and put in cells and the cops come to you and say, oh, look, Tony's confessed. You better confess. You don't know if I've confessed. If they say that to me too, if we both stay stung, we both we both get, you know, get off. If one of us says something, then the other one gets off. Uh, sorry, then, then you get off and the other one goes to jail. So what do you do? So it's the same sort of situation. So as soon as someone thought there was um, negative equity in the bank and they couldn't pay the deposits and started withdrawing, that just started a stampede. And then it became a real problem, not just a paper problem. Yeah. And I heard it was Peter Thiel who oh, started the okay. whole thing. Yeah. Co-founder of PayPal, uh, along with many other sort of businesses he's been involved in but um i read somewhere and read it or something over the weekend that uh he started the he started <laughs> the thing i also read that uh the ceo managed to sell 3.6 million dollars in stock a couple of days before <laughs> the failure well you'd hope that's clawed back i mean under under Australian insolvency laws, it could be clawed back. I don't know what the US laws say, but yeah, I mean, that's just egregious, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes and no. But again, like he had, I assume, no idea that this bank run was about to happen. I mean, it, it, it's not like the business was failing before the bank run. They just uh, had some assets that were worthless. Yeah, which he knew about and the investors and depositors didn't. And he just happened to sell his shares three days before a bank run. <laughs> he probably had coffee with Peter Thiel and then went, hmm, shit, note to self, sell shares. <laughs> we, we are not alleging that at all. No, uh, if, we're not. Uh, the CEO's lawyers are listening. <laughs> Joking, just jokes. There has been some criticism I read today. Somebody said the Fed has basically just written insurance on interest rate risk for the whole banking system. This is Stephen Kelly, Senior Research Associate at Yale's Program on Financial Stability. And that, he said, could stoke future risk-taking by implying that the Fed will step in if things go awry. I call it a bailout of the system, Mr. Kelly said. It lowers the threshold for the expectation of where emergency steps kick in. Now, the Biden administration is saying it's not a bailout because the bank is going to shut its doors unless it gets bought out, I guess, taken over. The investors are going to lose their money, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know how to read this, but um, anyway. It's a deposit guarantee. Well, look, it's it, yeah, it's, a, it's a, an example of under-regulation in the States and moral hazard. 
similar to what people have called the Fed put in the share market when things were going great guns, people will often argue, well, there's no risk because as soon as the share market drops, the Federal Reserve will cut interest rates and prop it up again. So as long as you have mum around, you don't care what you do. You just go, go crazy right in the walls, <laughs> kick eggs out the backyard. Who cares? It's just... As long as the parents from Bluey are running things, you're going to be okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yet again, the US banking system has uh, crashed my portfolio. Like it's every time they do something over there, it affects us. You know, I've seen a lot of consternation and gnashing of teeth in our forums and in emails from people. And unfortunately, it has just been one thing after another for the last well, couple of years since COVID. But Last year, Ukraine, China, COVID, interest rates, uh, now this. Did I forget something? I feel like there was another thing that happened. <laughs> it's just one thing after another. Um, I wanted to do a comms update because um, there were a number of commodity changes on our buy list yesterday. Copper has become a Josephine. Aluminium became a sell. Manganese became a Josephine, nickel became a sell, and wheat became a Josephine. Gold, though, is having a great week. Gold is just going crazy. I ended up adding two gold stocks. When I was trying to buy something, I had to sell some things for the light portfolios this morning. And it was very hard to replace them because pretty much everything was having a down day, except for some gold stocks that I found. So, uh, yeah, gold is doing well right now. SVB has been good for gold. I believe this happened during the GFC too. People pulled their money out of the banking system and put it into gold. But speaking of commodities, I did send you an email about this yesterday, I think. I'm not sure if you've seen it yet, but S32. You and I both own some S32, according to our disclosure sheet, and I think we've got some in some of the QAV portfolios as well. According to my commodity breakdown in the Comstocks tab, S32 is, they cover a bunch of different things, nickel, zinc, aluminium, coal, and manganese. The last time I did a breakdown on it, it was aluminium was 50% of their revenue, and aluminium, as I said, is now a sell. Manganese was 20%, and coking coal was 30%. Coking coal is a buy, but the others are a sell. What do you think about S32 in that situation, Tony? Should we be thinking about uh, selling that if aluminium's a sell? Sorry, I, I haven't looked at it. So aluminium, what was the other ones? What's manganese doing? The breakdown I've got in my spreadsheet from the last time I looked at it, which wasn't that long ago, is aluminium is 50% of their revenue. It's Aluminium's currently a sell. Poking coal was 30%. It's a buy. Manganese was the other 20%, and it's a Josephine. So 70% of their revenue is either a sell or a Josephine, 30% is a buy. Yeah. I mean, I, it's a hard one, isn't it? Because it's like it sounds like half half to sell, the other half is either a buy or a Josephine, which wouldn't be a sell. Don't know. The share price I'm, I'm just looking at it is down today, which I guess everything is. What's the... What's the sentiment doing for South 32? Yeah, it's down as well. Good, good question, Cam. Don't know. I'd probably sell it. It's, I mean, sentiment's down. Uh, it's a Josephine, but it's well above its sell price. Sell price is $3.09. It's currently trading at four fifteen. So you think sell it? 
yeah, it's just so hard to know because it's 50-50, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, the safe thing to do would be to sell it. But yeah, look, leave it with me. I'm going to have to look at all the charts and make a decision. I haven't done it yet. One thing I just wanted to cover too, the dummy portfolio down a bit, obviously, with the stuff that's going on, but still doing relatively well. Interestingly, I looked at it for this quarter, and we're coming towards the end of the quarter. We are now neck and neck with the STW for the quarter. The STW was way ahead of us for most of this quarter, but it's now fallen back to zero for the quarter which is around about where we're at as well. So <laughs> it's been interesting just the last um, few months, actually, the gap between us and the SDW for this financial year has been dropping quite a lot. We've been catching up as it's been taking more hits. It had a lot of growth over the last year, a lot more growth than we did, but it's giving a lot of that up at a faster rate than we have been giving it up to. So Interesting how that's seeming to starting to balance out. But still, since inception, we're, I think, two and a half to three times better. But um, certainly hasn't been a great year for the dummy portfolio the last 12 months. It's been one of those sort of steady-as-she-goes years. Hasn't really been um, showing a lot of growth. We've given a lot back. Yeah, same with mine. It's been a tough year. I agree. But we're not we're not under though. Like we, you know, we're above, we're up. I think a couple of points in the last twelve months. But um, yeah, it's not one of our big growth years. It's going to happen. Yeah. All right. What have you got on your uh, list of things to talk about, TK? Had a couple of things. RBA lifted interest rates last week to three point six percent. It's interesting you said that the bond market was down today because uh, I would have said with the problems with. SBV and if it does go SVB, sorry, if it does go through and cause other problems in the banking system, it's entirely possible that could have been the last interest rate rise. But we'll see. If the yields are inverted again on bonds, then uh, that might not be the case. Philip Lowe was out in the market last week talking about interest rates and was hinting that he was getting close to the end of raising rates and was saying nice things like he was going to meet with some people, I think, from Lifeline because. Unfortunately, there have been some people who had killed themselves over their financial positions due to rising interest rates. So he was trying to show the his soft side, I guess, last week. I thought he was having to call Lifeline after <laughs> uh, all of the attacks on him in the media last week. I thought he was... Well, that's true too. He might have to call the unemployment office in, in September when his contract's up for renewal, but that's another matter. Yeah, so uh, interest rates are lifted. There'll be another meeting, of course, early April, and we'll see what happens then. I would have thought if there is a problem with banks that that would be the end of the interest rate rises, but we'll see. <laughs> I've actually actually been watching the rolling year records tables in the AFR every day, which I, I tend to do when I read it just, just for fun, because uh, we, we often see the buy-list stocks are the ones that are having their rolling highs. So this is from last Thursday. There were there were 12 companies that had rolling year records and there was a lot of companies that had rolling year low points. And uh, Qantas and KSC were both on that list and QBE and ACF were both on the list as well, even though they've just fallen off the buy list because their share prices are up. So uh, what's that? Four out of 12 stocks, a third. Can you explain what this rolling thing is again? What, what, what is this table showing us? Yeah, so... 
for most of the days, the FinReview produces a table on the share market page and it lists the companies that are at their 12-month high stock price and then the companies which are at their 12-month low stock price. And it's a rolling 12 months. So it's called the rolling the rolling year records table. And it's just a, a quick and dirty way to, you know, to see what's doing well and what's not doing well, I guess. And I just thought it was interesting that we are seeing a lot of buy-list stocks on that list. The other thing I think it's interesting, it's been a long time since the the rolling year highs have been equal or outnumbered the rolling year lows. So the market is going down at the moment. And I'm actually wondering whether that's going to be some kind of indicator for us to use in terms of you know when we should be sitting on our hands or whether we should be investing. So I don't know if I get some, get some time and resources, I might investigate that and see if it's certainly amusing of mine. But the good news, I guess, is that as you were saying, the market's going down, but some of our stocks are hitting their their 12-month peaks, which is good for us. One of those stocks, uh, which can't be too far off its 12-month peak, is Maya. And there was um, it, it produces its results a month after the rest of the market because they don't want to do their be tied up doing results during their busiest selling season, which is Christmas. And so they rule off in, at the end of January rather than the end of December. And uh, yeah, it was well-received, the profit results were. The report is headed reinvented Maya and generous mood, and it's because they've given um, a dividend increase. Maya shares surged more than 18% to a six-year high after the department store rewarded its long-suffering shareholders with a special dividend after posting its highest first half-year net profit in almost a decade. So for the people who've uh, held on to Maya, good on you. It's, uh, it's turning around, which is nice. A couple of other things. Been meeting with Ryan on Zoom about the um, analysis he's doing, and he made a comment during our last meeting that uh, we're still looking at whether buying from the top of the buyer list is a better portfolio than buying from the bottom. Early indicators are that it is, which which may have some impact on our investing going forward. But the comment he made was that one of the things that was hurting the bottom of the of the bottom portfolio was that. Uh, they were churning a lot more because they were breaking their rule ones more often. So um, I know we've had lots of churn with rule ones in the last six to 12 months. So that, that's an interesting observation. And I'll be looking through that in more detail in the coming weeks. So explain that to me again slowly. The shares that are in the bottom of the buy list. The shares that are in the bottom of the buy <laughs> Yeah. So Ryan's doing analysis. He's he's <laughs> He's gone back to when we through our history of buy lists. And in fact, that's an interesting thing we should do. Maybe we should put that the buy lists on our website or make them available to our listeners so they, they might be able to short circuit some of the analysis and and have a look at things themselves. But anyway. They're all available in Dropbox, the whole history of our buy lists. On the website? Well, for club members, you know, via uh, the club member section, they have access to all the buy list history, yeah. Okay, well, that's good. So Ryan's taking that history and, and he's gone back a couple of years and he's reconstructed portfolios based on buying the top 10 stocks in the buy list and buying the bottom 10 stocks in the buy list. And then he's tracked them over the last couple of years and sold them if they've rule one or if there's been a commodity sale or if there's been a three-point trend line sale and uh, replaced them with another stock from the top or the bottom. So he's finding the top stocks are performing better than the bottom stocks. And he thinks one of the reasons is because if he has to sell something, there's more rule ones in the bottom of the buy list. And then the stock he buys becomes a rule one as well, quicker than the top stocks. So interesting observation. 
but the ones from the bottom of the list that don't rule one, there's not enough upside in those to neutralize the loss in the rule ones. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't looked through the numbers yet, but that would be the case, I would think. But yeah, Ryan's got to pull it all together and present it. So what would, what would your theory be for why the stocks at the bottom of the list get rule one more than the stocks at the top of the list? We, we rank it on QAV score, which factors in the quality score. So it's lower quality or just lower QAV score in total means more rule ones. Yeah, I don't know. Potentially, the stocks at the top of the buy list are more deep value, so they might be at the bottom and going up, whereas the ones further down the list might be already started to go up and now they're going back down again. I don't know. So this might be an argument for the cutoff instead of being 0.1 being 0.2 or 0.15 or something. Yeah. So that was some work that Dylan did for me last year. He thought 0.2 was a better cutoff, but never really fleshed it out as to what, you know, was it 0.2, 0 0.15, 0 0.18. So after we get this initial work from Ryan, the next step will be to start doing some decile or quintile analysis to see if there are, you know, what the best cutoff is for the QAV score. But we'll just get through this first bit first. It's actually quite painstaking going through and creating a portfolio then tracking it through for rule ones and three-point trend line cells and commodity cells. So, But we started with a simple test first of all to see if it was worthwhile going any further. And at this stage, it looks like it is, but I'm just still waiting for Ryan to do a, a finished report. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So that was good. I wanted to go back a couple of weeks ago. I mentioned that Brett Fisher from the Bredelator had sent me an email about Renko charts and had said that I, I misreported saying that he thought that they were as good as a moving average, but I got that wrong. He's saying there is that they're analogous to a trailing stop loss. So again, I'm still waiting for, for Ruddy to pull that piece of work together. His initial results were that the three-point trend line buy signals were better than Renko charts, but the Renko charts were better for, for getting us out earlier when things turned down, which I guess is what a trailing stop loss does. Uh, and I think Brett's point was it may be easier to use a trailing stop loss rather than the Renko chart. But anyway, we'll um, I'll again wait for that piece of work to come through and see where that takes us as well. And that's the end of the free episode of QAV for this week. If you're a new listener, I just should let you know how this works. So we have a free episode every week, runs for about half an hour. We have a premium episode also every week. It goes for another 30 to 60 minutes, depending on how many questions we get. It's where Tony answers questions from our club members. If you want to check out the premium episodes and all the other benefits of being a QAV club member, which is access to the checklist and, and the Bible and uh, the private Facebook groups and the other comms channels that we have, invites to the dinners, Zoom calls, etc., etc. Just sign up for the two-week free trial and check out all that stuff out. You can do that at qavpodcast.com.au. Look for the um, free trial button there. And if you uh, like the idea of value investing QAV style but don't feel like you have the time or resources to uh, you know, learn how to do QAV for yourself, think about signing up for QAV Lite. That's our relatively new service where we send you the stock tips every week. And then we also monitor those stocks in a portfolio. And if they become a sell, 
we email our QAV Lite members and tell them that it's time to sell that stock and what to replace it with. Check that out too. It's sort of a low effort way of doing QAV. Still better if you know how to do it yourself, I think, because Tony could get hit by a bus and then where are you? But, uh, you know, while he's not, <laughs> we can do this. So check that out, qavpodcast.com.au slash light, L-I-G-H-T. That's it. If you don't want to sign up to any of those, just keep listening to the free episodes. And if you have any questions, uh, shoot me an email. You'll find that on our website too. All right, have a great week and good luck with your investing. The QAV Podcast is a production of Spacecraft Publishing Proprietary Limited, authorised representative of AFSL 520442, AFS representative number 00129271. Please don't make any investment decisions based solely on listening to this podcast. This is presented as general advice only, not personal financial advice. We don't know your personal financial circumstances. Please see a financial planner before making any investing decisions.